0: Okay, today is passion. What are you passionate about? Passion, if you want to follow on your outline, is the definition is enthusiasm and excitement for life. Enthusiasm and excitement for life. And it is an extreme emotional response. Today, we're going to see Nehemiah in his most passionate state. This is sort of a surprise ending to this book.
1: Would you go over that again?
0: Yes. Passion is enthusiasm and excitement for life. It is an extreme emotional response, almost like an obsession. And today we're gonna to see Nehemiah being passionate. Uh, this book is, kind of has a surprise ending. Um, it's not the romantic ending and they lived happily ever after. It's not an ending that's really expected since um, with all that the people have gone through and together and individually and how God has just um, allowed them to accomplish the things that he's allowed them to accomplish. God has showed them his faithfulness. He's gathered them back from exile to Jerusalem. He's softened their hearts. And they've committed individually and collectively to live in accordance to God's law. And they've placed themselves back under his covenant, his covenant of protection. So why do they then return in this chapter to their old self-destructive patterns? Okay? So, they had seen where their disobedience had led them. They had been living these past several years in the promise of the blessings. So, what caused them to backslide into this disobedience? And it's a question that we too uh, can ask ourselves. I think the answer to that question for the Israelites as well as for us is threefold it's they began to have questions. Those questions blown up into doubts, and then those doubts became fear. Um, When I was at the um, counseling center, when I was doing counseling at the addiction center, the treatment center, we would talk a lot about fear because the clients, the fear of the unknown, the fear of their families were going to re-accept them back into their homes. Just, they had just burned all kinds of bridges. But fear, I found a great acronym, and we would go over it, is false expectations appearing real, okay? False expectations appearing real, okay? Now, you can actually clinically find that 80% of what you worry about, what you stress about, what you fear about, never happens. 85%, okay? So we waste a lot of time... In fear and worry and stress so I think that the questions the doubts and the fears um, turn us from the things of God and they turn us towards sin and that just makes us have a lot of suffering I want to get back to that at the end so we're not going to we're not going to forget about that but first of all we're going to get to Nehemiah 13 I want to go to verse 6 First, because that's kind of the opening here, and then we're going to go back to the other verses. But verse 6, chapter 13. While this was <clears throat> taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king. So, according to this verse, We are fast-forwarding this chapter by 12 years. Nehemiah tells us that he's back with the king. It's the same king as when he came the first time. So it's King Artaxerxes' 32nd year of reigning. If we go back to Nehemiah 1, when he first hears about the plight of Jerusalem and his nation, this beloved city, it's the king's 20th reign. So I'm not great with math. I think I've told you before that's why I married a CPA. But um, that would be 12 years, right? 30 minus 32 minus 20, so 12 years. So Nehemiah has been gone for 12 years. So to paint this picture that Nehemiah sees upon his return, we just have to review for one second chapter 10. If you remember chapter 10, that was uh, the, the lesson entitled... Um, the cost of obedience, count the cost. So we studied about the covenant that God made with the people and how they began to experience this revival. And then at the very end of chapter 10, verses 30 through 39, they had done a written oath. They had made a promise. And what were some of those promises? Well, I'm just going to review them real quickly. They were not to give their sons and daughters to intermarry. No pagan um, influences in, in marriage. No business was to be conducted with the pagans or any business whatsoever on the Sabbath. okay They were to keep the Sabbath holy. They were to support the temple and its needs. Remember, there were many needs and many many people, um, gatekeepers, temple worshipers, singers, priests, levites, they were to take care of. They were to ca- take care of them by bringing in the first fruits of their crops. To the temple. They were to fill the storehouses they were, with their tithes and with their offerings. Basically, they promised not to neglect the house of God. They were to get back on task and offer the sacrifices correctly and observe observe the feast days that um, Moses had written in the, the book of uh, the the book of the law. And then in chapter 12 the last lesson we had We left the people climbing and singing on top of the wall um, for all the surrounding nations to hear them praise the one true God. So they were set in a great position to be moving forward and to be seeking and praising God um, in a godly way. So in those 12 years of Nehemiah's absence, they began to make compromises. What exactly is a compromise? Does anybody want to venture to guess?
1: A slippery slope for me. A slippery slope. <laughs> an, <laughs> altering, an alteration.
0: An alteration from the plan, given plan. Very good. Three people
1: meeting in the middle.
0: Okay. Oh, that's the positive one. Yeah, that is the positive <laughs> yeah, one. Thank you. I was on <laughs> yeah, thinking
1: Each person, each party gives in a little bit. Yes. Or sometimes the, less, than the best. Best. less yeah.
0: than the best. Less than the best, yeah, and each party gives in. Yeah, all of these are, are, you know, very good, very good answers. Compromise is when you accept standards lower than desirable. And they can be selfish standards. I mean, you know, so we, we do have to meet in the middle. So compromise. <laughs> Compromises in marriages or any relationships are necessary, right? Because we can't always have our own way, even though in my In my mind, my way is best. (laughs) That control thing. Okay. So it's give and take. But compromise, when it involves God's word at stake, is never acceptable. And it's not a compromise. It's disobedience. It's sin. Okay. So Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, and he sees that everything that they have committed to in chapter 10, they've tossed out of the window. So Nehemiah encounters a situation where the people of Judah need to be corrected in a number of areas. There's actually four areas here we're going to discuss today. And each of the issues is connected to their very reason for being in existence as God's chosen people. And Exodus, we're not going to have the time to go read this, but Exodus 19:5 and 6 says, Now then, if you will obey my voice... And keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Okay? And then again in Leviticus 20, it says, God's words say, Thus you are to be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine so Nehemiah is concerned and rightly so for two main reasons here one being the spiritual leaders need to live holy lives and they need to be dedicated to serving God so that they can help bring those others along kind of the the, the rest of the group along with them but they need to be taken care of and they're not being taken care of and the people the second reason is the people are um, Not rejecting sin and they're not providing the needs for the spiritual leaders so the spiritual leaders can do their jobs So nehemiah needs to correct them and help them get back on track Or else he sees them falling into the same destruction of their forefathers And that's how they got to be in exile to begin with You know god isn't fooling around and nehemiah understands this
1: he knows
0: how serious god is God is serious in his promises, he is serious in his blessings, but he is just as serious in his discipline, okay? So the first issue that Nehemiah needs to address is found in verses 1 through 3. So let's go back to verses 1 through 3. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those foreign descent. So, who is Balaam? If you're interested, it's a really good um, backdrop to this. Go to Numbers 22 through 24 in your spare time, and you can read about his story. Balaam is, he was a wicked prophet, okay? He is noteworthy um, because he is not a false prophet. He was a prophet, but Balaam did not obey God. He, God did give him some true prophecies to speak. However, Balaam's heart was not right with God, and eventually he showed his true colors by betraying Israel and leading them astray. And one of the ways he did this was uh, Balak, uh, B-A-L-A-K, he was a king of Moab, um, had came and asked him if he would um, betray or curse the Israelite um, nation as they were just coming into the Promised Land. So that is in reference to what Nehemiah is talking about here. Um So they were allowing foreigners into their circle and allowing them into their assemblies. And they were supposed to have kept themselves separate, especially the Ammonites and the Moabites. So relationships with foreigners in the promised land had caused them to violate God's commands long, long ago when they were first entering into the promised land. And we have Paul telling us in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, bad company corrupts good character. Okay? So think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. Those are Paul's words, okay? So the first thing was they were allowing foreigners into the general assembly. The second issue that Nehemiah has to deal with is found in verses 4 through 9. So let's read those together. Now, before this, Elishahib, the priest Who was appointed (coughs) over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah? Anybody remember Tobiah? He was one of our
1: one of the three.
0: Very good. Prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. And then we have, for this 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Bib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the, vessel of, the vessels of the house of God and the grain offerings and the frankincense. The frankincense is very important because it was part of the uh, purity ritual. So frankincense was considered, um, when they burned the incense of frankincense, it was a purifying, um, purifying oil. So, Elishabah, the priest, the high priest, has become related, probably through marriage, most likely, to Tobiah, okay? And we all remember him, like we said. He was one of the uh, enemies that mocked the Israelites when they began building the wall. He was one of Nehemiah's uh, nemesis. He threatened, actually, to come and fight them and said that he would kill them. It was Tobiah, if you remember from a previous lesson, who actually hired the Israelite prophet who was living in Jerusalem to lie to Nehemiah and say, they're coming, they're coming to kill you, they're coming to kill you right now. Let's, I'm going to hide you in the temple. And, of course, Nehemiah was not allowed to go into the temple because he was not from the, the priestly tribe. So um, Tobiah was the one that sent letters and just kind of kept things stirred up. Sabiah was the one in chapter 4 as they were building the, the walls who said, who compared the wall's strength to that of a fox walking across the wall. And then, again, we saw in chapter 10, um, his words were renounced because all the people were on top of the wall. So, um, yeah, he's just not one of those, those good guys. Um, there are a few red flags here um, that Nehemiah sees. First, Elisha hid. Should not have had anything to do with this guy, whether he was related or not. For one, he's an Amorite, an Ammonite. He was a troublemaker when Nehemiah was in charge. And secondly, he should have never been allowed to be anywhere near the temple or the temple gar- um, grounds. But not only that, where they were storing to buy his stuff, they kind of made him like a little apartment there, um, maybe like a you know, little, little getaway. Um, they, had, it, they had actually cleaned out a storeroom that they were supposed to be saving and, and collecting things for, to take care of the priests. So the red flag for Nehemiah was why was the storeroom empty in the first place? You know, we need to take care of, um, of our priests. So we read in verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field, okay? So the storeroom was empty because the people were no longer giving the assigned portions that they were required to give. And so what this chain reaction was causing, what it was causing the temple workers and the gatekeepers and the singers, they needed to provide for their families. So they fleed the city and they went and they started working their own fields again so that they could survive because their survival was supposed to be um, put on to the rest of the nation, okay? It's not hard to kind of, when you think about this, to imagine how maybe this came about. After Nehemiah left, Tobiah definitely seized his opportunity. Um, Have you ever known somebody who is so charming and who is so like amicable that he just kind of weasels his way in. So, you know, I kind of picture, you know, Tobiah as maybe being this, you know, good-looking, you know, strapping man, you know, who kind of, like, you know, walks and talks with, like, a lot of confidence and, you know, just kind of maybe that narcissistic personality kind of thing. But after Nehemiah left, Tobiah just kind of saw that he could uh, weasel his way in, and maybe he changed his attitude just a little bit and charmed his way into the city, you know, if you remember that saying, um, you know, that, well, I heard it in Sunday school many times, um, remember, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. <laughs> so Tobiah wanted to see things at an eye level and, you know, really study uh, the, these enemies. You know, maybe he told Elisha uh that Nehemiah had exaggerated the stories of him some 12 years ago. And after 12 years, what kind of happens in time? You know, things aren't quite as passionate as they were um, back then. Um, maybe he used the excuse that he was actually just looking out for Jerusalem and that he really cared for them because, remember, he was also under the king. He had been assigned uh, as an official of the king, so he said, I'll keep an eye out for you, and I can kind of be a buffer with you and the king um, because he was under the Persian territory as well maybe he just wanted a tour of the temple and he saw an opportunity to just kind of sneak in under the radar Um, he wanted a tour because he had seen what they had accomplished in such a short period of time so um, that would have been a curiosity point for him however he did it he knew exactly what he was doing and how he was doing it Um, he won Elisha Bibb over and maybe the priest at the beginning had good intentions but he began to compromise, okay? And that led to, just as Kathy said, a slippery slope. And just like us, compromise, or I'm going to say disobedience, is the slippery slope. The Ammonites uh, had a history with the Israelites from the time in the, the wilderness with Moses. And uh, they were not to be included. It says a couple times in this book they are not to be included in the assembly Uh, There are no intermarriages, no exchanging of religious practices, so God makes it very clear and warns these people of um, having evil associations. You know, Proverbs is full of wisdom for us to stay clear of evil, selfish, wicked, angry men. And that's not to say that we shouldn 't that we should isolate ourselves or that we even can isolate ourselves from people who think differently from us or people who are not believers because that 's not possible to do we 're actually called to witness and befriend the unsaved, but clearly um, it is wrong to engage regularly with evil fighting people um, it means not to make them a part of like your inner circle you know not to be vulnerable with them as maybe you are with other people you can you know and and I think we can all do this um, you can tell the difference between someone who is fake friending you for personal gain versus somebody who is sincerely wanting to get to know you and why you believe the way you do you know somebody who is really searching for answers um, as to what why your faith is the way you do so The reason that God is so clear about this and gives us so many opportunities and and telling us uh, to be careful of the company we keep is because who you hang out with influences you. You influence them, but they influence you too. You know, it's it's a give and take. And we all know how crazy it even sounds. Like you wouldn't go into business with someone that you knew was literally breaking the law. So why would you be, like, bestest friends with someone who is literally breaking God's law? You know, just something to think about. In chapter 8, or not chapter 8, but verse 8, it tells us that, we, that we've already read that Nehemiah removes Tobiah from the temple and orders that the room be cleansed. And again, we talked about um, in the last lesson this ceremony, this purification Uh, Ceremony, the things that needed to be done in order to purify. So that was a process. So in verse 10, like we read, Nehemiah finds out that the Levites have not been given the portion of their uh, food or their payment, so to speak. So they have had to move out and move back to the field so that they can provide a living for their families. It was a survival move for them. They needed to survive. So let's read verses 11 and 12. So this is Nehemiah speaking. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. Okay, so Nehemiah is furious, and he is not afraid of confrontation. He demands to know why the temple is being neglected. And then he calls back the Levites and the singers and restores them to their proper place in the temple. And he says, these people are under your care, they're under your charge, you need to provide for them. And Nehemiah is kind of, you know, a big deal. So they listen when he speaks. And so they begin bringing their grain again and they begin bringing their new wine and their olive oil back to the temple and they begin refilling these storehouses. And then in verse thirteen, and as as and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shalmanai the priest, Zodak the scribe, and Padua of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zucar, son of Metena, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. So he assigned supervisors. To honestly distribute these offerings to the temple workers, now these men, if we know anything about we, Nehemiah, we know he is thorough, so he has vetted these men thoroughly. they are men who have you know character traits that he is looking for they are honest men, they are men of integrity, they are men of action, they are um, mighty men they are mighty in their faith they are um, you know warriors so to speak um, in in their uh, in their faith so he would have definitely he knows how to delegate we've learned that from the lesson of the dream team he knows how to how to delegate so he pulled these workers together and these are the supervisors he's he's kind of like cleaning house here and making new administration verse 14. He says, Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Again, we've, we've heard a couple of times where Nehemiah, it almost sounds like a self-serving kind of selfish prayer. But again, the commentaries remind us when he's saying, What I did was in accordance to your will. Now preserve it and protect me. It's not a selfish prayer because he knew he was doing God's will to preserve the temple. Nehemiah was confident because, and he could pray this because he knew he was worthy of his calling and he knew that this is what God had called him to do. He also knew that he needed protection because he couldn't just defend himself in this because he knew that most likely he was going to come up against opposition either from the surrounding nations, like it happened before, or even from within the the city walls, like that had happened before as well. So then we have the third issue that Nehemiah has to deal with, and this is about the Sabbath. And this is a little bit, this is the bulk of the chapter here. So we are going to read together 15 through 22. In these those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Okay, so they're they're not respecting the Sabbath. The tyrans also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Okay, so they're saying, even within the city walls, this is happening. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us on, in this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So he's taking this very, very seriously. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Mm -hmm. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. He just has such a presence, such a commanding presence. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Okay, so this third issue that Nehemiah has to deal with is the the way the people were observing the Sabbath. The people were working on the Sabbath. The nations were coming into the city. They were selling produce right within their city walls, not even just outside the city, but inside the city walls. So Nehemiah commanded that the gates be shut from Friday evening to Saturday evening And he was so passionate about this that he even stationed his own guards to guard the gates. And when the merchants started to set up outside the gates, Nehemiah warned them if they stuck around on the Sabbath, he was going to personally attack them. And that scared him off. And I like to see it as, you know, the power of one man with God behind him, you know. That's all he needed to persuade them. They were, they were gone. You know, sometimes when we want to do things in our own strength, you know, we get really, but we can't. You know, it, it, God has to be the one who is directing it. Okay. I know we're going through this quickly, but I want to get through the, the whole chapter here. So we're going to read the fourth thing, the fourth issue that Nehemiah dealt with are verses 23 and 24. And this is about the intermarrying. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. Remember, Ammon and Moab were the Ammonites and the Moabites, which were not to be in the general assembly at all. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So, the last issue that Nehemiah deals with is this intermarrying It's a huge deal because Ezra has dealt with this 30 years prior. And Ezra makes mention of this in Ezra 9. The people in chapter 10, again, have made a covenant vowing that they would not do this anymore. So Nehemiah is greatly disturbed that the children of these mixed marriages didn't even know the Hebrew language. And without the Hebrew language, what did that mean? It meant that they couldn't hear the scripture in their own words. Remember what what a production that was when Ezra preached at the the Watergate and was uh, preaching in their own words. They had to have many people interpreting and explaining um, the scriptures to them. So this meant that future generations um, were not going to learn the law in their homes. And they weren't going to know all the uh, proper ways to do the sacrifices and to do the celebrations. Um, they weren't going to. They weren't going to feel comfortable in the temple. So they were raising a generation who did not know God or did not know how to worship God. And uh, very, very sad. Nehemiah was not happy about that. Verses twenty-five through twenty-seven. This is him talking to the people who have done the intermarrying. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to the sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not King Solomon, and this is huge, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him remember he was the wisest king he was the greatest king he built the temple that his father david had dreamed of building and he was beloved by his god god had a special hand on on solomon and god made him king over all of israel this was before israel was divided nevertheless foreign women all these foreign women made him to sin Shall we listen then to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Okay, so Nehemiah's attack on these Jews who had intermarried these non-Jews was very confrontational. It was direct. It was brutal. He called down curses and even physically pulled out their hair. I can't even imagine a scene like this. But, fast forward, maybe 400, 430 years later, what's going to happen on the temple grounds? Who's going to get violent? Jesus, I was thinking that the whole time. A righteous it? anger. It's, right. Nehemiah right. has so a righteous anger, right. yes. Temple so, you know, you think, like, why was, he, why was he doing this? Well, it was this righteous anger that came out of him. So... He was literally using everything he could to force this people that he loved, and he had really given his life to um, serve. He made them swear. He made them take vows. He was so passionate about this because the main (coughs) issue behind the Babylonian captivity in the first place was this disobedience and this intermarrying, this allowing... Um, those compromises of these pagan uh, religions to come into, into their, their faith practices. And Nehemiah just did not have the heart that this could happen again. So he actually brings up Solomon, who would have been you know, the apple of their eye. I mean, he was a king so well-known. He was the wisest king, and God had his hand on him. And then he reminds them that his destruction and breakdown of the entire nation was due to loving these foreign women, okay? So how could, knowing this past, how could you, you know, have history repeat itself by what you're doing? And a lot of times we can do it, we can justify it by saying, well, he had multiple wives, I only have one, you know? I mean, we can justify ourselves and make it look not as bad, but remember, any disobedience to God is disobedience, no matter. He doesn't have levels. We do, but to make ourselves feel good, but he doesn't. So verses 28 and 29, it kind of kind of sums this up here. It says, and one of the sons of Jehodiah, the son of El- Esha- Elishahib, the high priest. So this is his son, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Hornite. Remember him. He's another one of our are bullies from way back. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember then, oh my God, because I have desecrated, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Okay, so he banished him. This Jehadiah, he banished. And it was a very drastic action against the most prominent spiritual leader. It was the grandson of the high priest, Elishahib. This young man had married the daughter of Sambalat, like we said, um, one of our earlier enemies. Sambalat, if you recall, was the governor of Samaria, and he was very much (laughs) an arch rival of the Jews. And they kind of believed a kernel of truth um, of the law of Moses, but then they kind of deviated. So there was a kernel of truth in how they believed, but they were definitely um, arch rivals. And the marriage was particularly offensive because it had formed an alliance with Israel's enemy and it had compromised the purity of the high priesthood. So it was a very, very, um, it was a very blatant sin. And because of the grievous nature of this sin, Nehemiah banished this young man from the community and he prayed that God would deal with those who defiled the priesthood. Excuse me. Dramatic effort to preserve... The holiness of this line of priests okay because again you know this it's 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 so important to the survival of this nation for their priests to be holy in verses 30 and 31 thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits remember me oh my god for good so he cleansed everything once again that was pagan and knew, nehemiah knew that he had done everything he knew how to do to bring about the righteousness of the priesthood to save this tribe of the levites this is really this is what i found interesting because malachi is the last book of the old testament malachi and nehemiah were contemporaries So this very well could have been, some of the commentaries say, very well could have been the last words uttered before the 400 years of silence. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about that in a second. There's 400 years of silence from the the closing of the Old Testament to the opening of the New Testament when Jesus um, is is prophesied and, and actually comes on the scene. And what I found interesting in this is... When Nehemiah is saying this, his words, remember me, oh my God, for good. Again, he's, Nehemiah is not being prideful. He's not requesting a prominent place in God's kingdom, but rather it's a plea for a man who is deeply conscious of the subtleties of sin and the pull that the world has um, on the people of God. He understands the insidiousness of the enemy and how the enemy uses subtleties to draw, uh, well, I'm gonna say disobedience, but to draw us into compromise. So, more than anything else, Nehemiah longed to make a difference in the kingdom, not for his own glory, but for God's glory. Okay? Now, an interesting thing, this is just a little fact that I found that I wanted to share. It doesn't really have anything to do with the lesson per se. The four hundred years of silence is fourteen generations, okay there were fourteen generations from Abraham to King David, and there are fourteen generations from David to the exile of Babylon and then now this is ushering the next fourteen generations from um, you know from the the silence between being restored <coughs> being restored out of exile to the Coming of the Messiah. Think back. I mean, I trace some of my history, but I have not gone 14 generations back. Think about 14 years and how long of a, of a time that is for God to be silent. It's not that God wasn't there. And it's not that, you know, he necessarily wasn't working. Um, but, and he pres- He allowed people to come into the scene during that time to preserve the his, his, his word. But... 400 years is a long time to be silent. So just a kind of a quick summary here, and then we're going to get to one more thing. The the summary of the character character traits that Nehemiah showed throughout this whole study, um, he was a passionate man about prayer. He was a passionate man in his actions. He did everything that was purposeful. He was a passionate man about integrity. He was honest. He was passionately selfless, passionately focused, passionately (coughs) motivated. He was a passionate encourager. He passionately was not afraid when he would come up against opposition. He was passionate. So in closing, I just thought a good way to wrap this up I'm just going to take maybe a couple minutes here -- is remember at the beginning of the lesson, and I said that, you know, I think three things um, really lead to uh, our downfall, and if we are backsliding. And I said it was questions doubts and fear. And I just kind of want to put my two cents in here for a second. God is a big God. Okay? He can handle our questions. If you tell me you have not questioned God about any particular circumstance in your life, I am going to not believe you. (laughs) I won't call you a liar because my mama raised me better than that, but um, I I will tell you that, that you are not being truthful. Uh, you may have been taught that it's not right to question God, but I'm going to beg you to kind of think with me for a second. Um, you know, in my counseling training, we, were, we learned to ask questions. You ask questions for two reasons, not only to get to know the client or the person that you're working with, but also to get them to learn about themselves because questions is how we process things, okay? Okay. I can tell you that God will never be upset if you have questions. Um, Questions are okay. The Bible tells us that his thoughts are not our thoughts. David in the psalm, the psalms has questions. He says, why, O Lord, do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why do you stand far off? (coughs) The book of Job is full of questions. I think there's one chapter in particular that has 79 questions. Wow. And it's, you know, Job has questions (coughs) about God on why he's allowing him to suffer. Habakkuk, you know, oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? So first, I think we need to learn to stop thinking that we shouldn't question God. Questions can build faith. And it allows you to know yourself better. And it allows you to know God better. But, and there's, this is the big but, they need to be asked from a humble heart and an open mind. And then the most important part is after you ask God a question, you need to give him a chance to answer. You need to, we need to learn to be still. Um, and that's why I love, I'm going to plug it one last time, people. That's why I love journaling so much. Okay, it gives me something that I can tangibly look at, and I write my questions in my journal. And then I can go back and quietly reflect on the answers that you know, that God has given me. Um, I don't like the answers all the time. Okay, A sweet, sweet friend told me not long ago, she had a lot of questions. I'm not sure that God has even answered them yet. But she kept coming back to when she was asking God the questions. He kept coming back to her with a question. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Okay? So God and Jesus, you know, he always would come back with a response and a question. Questions are not bad in and of themselves. Again, it's the perspective and how you ask them. Okay? Yes? I
1: just have John the Baptist, who we know is like cousins with Jesus, and he questioned. It says in Matthew 11, then John heard who is in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So he sent his, little, his boys to question, but who did he question? Jesus. He questioned Jesus, Jesus. And Jesus said, okay, well, just go tell him what's happening. Yeah. yeah. And But it's, it's interesting because we do think that that we should not be doubting that questions mean somehow <clears throat> we have less of a faith <clears throat> when honestly... <throat> our faith should be deep. Yes. And 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 God is hugely i he's so far above us that it's to me it's oh as long as you're going David and Habakkuk all these great guys they were questioning the Lord. Yeah. They were saying this doesn't seem right in my little in my tiny little brain in my little tiny time frame that I'm assigned on this world this just doesn't seem right to me. And God in his greatness and his glory will answer, we'll ask you again, like I like your friends, saying, well, do you trust me? Because sometimes, sort of like, you know, Georgianne was a teacher, you know, so you have a teacher. If you're a second grader and they ask you about imaginary numbers, well, they have no idea what that means. No. Okay, so I, I mean, and that's kind of what our questions sometimes seem to God. Like, I, I can't sit with you long enough to explain Because right now, you can count to 20. (laughs) And you don't even know about negative numbers and positive numbers and all that kind of stuff. But that's the way God is with us. But a teacher, a good teacher, will never demean a person. No. Absolutely. Because they ask a question. And they don't take it personally like, oh, like your number system is
0: wrong, Georgie. <laughs> it's actually a compliment because it, it's, it shows that they're, they're listening thinking, to you, and they're, you and they're thinking. I mean, I the, the analogy or the illustration that was just so brought out to me was my little two-year-old granddaughter uh, was here this past week or ten days. And why, Nene? Why?
1: Yeah. Why,
0: Nene? Why? Okay. And, you know, and it's like, you know, sometimes you're like, I can't hear that word. All the time. But you know, that's what we do to God, you know, why God? You know, why? You know, and, and you can say it in a in a crude crude way, you know, like why? Or you can say, you know, why? You know, I really want to understand. I really yeah. do want to understand. So I, it's, a, it's a way of, so don't be afraid to ask questions. I like it because it's a
1: conversation. It's a conversation, you're, you're, exactly. You're trying to get to know him. Yes. Him know, you know, it's, yes. it's, it's, it's really? good. It's, it's,
0: comu- it's yeah. communication, absolutely. It builds intimacy. Absolutely.
1: And it yes. It's seeking information. That's how I
0: look <clears throat> questions. And, uh, Pastor Stephen Furtick did a three-part series Did you ask? And he he mentioned
1: uh, Genesis 3. And uh, when you start in, Jesus, or God, asked questions. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you? Mm -hmm. And then he goes, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree at which I commanded you that you should not eat? Another question. Mm -hmm. And then down here, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Yeah. So he so he, he
0: asks he questions. Asked questions. He Absolutely. was seeking knowledge.
1: Yes. And when we ask questions of God, most of the time we're seeking knowledge. Right. We need to under we're trying to like you said in our tiny little brains to understand yes. what is this all about.
0: We're like that two-year-old mm-hmm. who yeah. you know mm-hmm. to the to the big father Deirdre. I, I had a question last time before in a study was
1: did King Nebuchadnezzar succeed? Because there are two in between Nebuchadnezzar, and last time we we're speaking about it, I didn't cash in time just to place them. So Nebuchadnezzar,
0: Nebuchadnezzar it could it very well could have been. I don't know the timeline all of the kings, but I know Nebuchadnezzar was king. He is the one who, who devoured Jerusalem and brought the exiles to Babylon. Shadrach, to Did, he oh, brought okay. Daniel. Yes, okay. yes, correct. Yes, so he was before our Ar- tag Xerxes. But they, they're, yeah, they've all kind of renamed each other the same name, so it, it is confusing. <laughs> the second thing is doubts. And doubts, again, they also have a negative connotation. But who is the most famous doubter in the Bible? Uh-huh. Doubting uh-huh. Thomas. <laughs> did Jesus get angry at Thomas when he doubted? No. no. What did he do? He showed Thomas exactly what he needed to see. He showed him the piercing of his side. He showed him the, the, the prints in his hands. So he does the same for us. Doubts are going to be a natural part of life. I mean, because we're, we don't know how life ends. We don't know what's happening. So we all have doubts. And it, it's very destructive if we stuff them down and we deny them and we say that we don't have doubts. Um, because, again, I believe if we deal with them correctly, it's a way that helps us grow and it strengthens our faith. I think for me, when... I'm experiencing doubts. Um, one of the things that I love to do is call a trusted friend, and just like, okay, help me, help me work through this. Remind me why this is stinking thinking, you know. Um, <laughs> another one of my recovery terms. Um, but also, I'm going to question you if you don't if you don't have that available to you, just talk out loud. You know, it's been proven that you know when you say words out loud. Um, you know it's just a way we process things so say it out loud and just kind of listen to it because when you speak it out loud it kind of stops that tape going on in your head you know because we all we're all talking to ourselves constantly all the time all the time that tape is running and it's just kind of a matter of stopping that and and listening to the right thing doubts for me make me really dig and study from all different perspectives okay so don't be afraid to doubt Again, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. It's just the way you go about um, processing them. And fear, fear can change our reality. Okay, fear can make us literally be anxious and change what we think is happening. Um, And it's and fear can be confusing because many times, numerous times in the Bible, it says, "Fear not." I mean, I haven't counted, but you've seen um, different uh, scholars and so forth say, you know, there's 365 fear knots in the Bible, one for each day of the year. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, um, but then we're told to fear the Lord, which is like being in awe of the Lord. So it can be a little bit, um, a little bit intimidating. But fear is an emotion, first of all, and we have to remember that emotions are not facts okay? It's how we interpret things, but emotions are not facts. Um, So we can control or work through our fears if we do it in the right way. Again, fearing is something that is natural. We've all been afraid. We've all been anxious. I mean, I think of like, you know, there's a fear of going to the dentist. There's fear of snakes. There's fear of you know, being alone, there's fear of death. I mean, all these things that cause anxiety. And they're, they're worthy things to be afraid of. But learning to address and name our fears is something any good counselor will tell you um, helps people. And why? Because when we name them and when we bring them out into the open, they kind of shrink. And from a spiritual perspective, when we take our fears which are little, which I am not demeaning anybody's fears because I know they're, they're real and they're big. But when we bring them in front of how big God is, just like Debbie was telling us at the beginning, they kind of are not as big as what we think they are. Does that make sense? So it's just, again, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is... As we close out this book of Nehemiah, um, we see that they have done great things. They have learned to be led by a true man of God. They've had revival in their hearts. And then at this last chapter, over this 12-year period, they've let question, doubts, and fears allow them to backslide. Do not let – work through them, talk to people about them – But do not let your questions, your doubts, and your fears define who you are, okay? Because defining who you are is you are a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And one of my favorite verses, it's it's one that um, I would love for us all to commit to memory. Let me see if I can, I which I can't memorize it right at the moment, but I'm going to, yes, here it is. Zephaniah 317, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Okay, that's how you can lose yourself with your questions, your doubts, and your fears. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I am just so grateful for this journey through Nehemiah, Lord. Thank you for giving us glimpses as to the man of God that he truly was, Lord, and how he just honored you in all that he did. Let us take these little nuggets of truth, Lord, and and these little sections of wall that we're trying to build in our own lives, Lord, and just let us just... Not leave this study here today when when we go home, but take it in our hearts, Lord, and just help us to put it into practice. We love you, Lord, and we are just um, expectantly um, anxious to just see what you do with this new knowledge that you have given to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, I do want to say I will let you close this, Debbie. Oh, thank you.